I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Isotope Native Instruments and Plugin Alliance are launching a whole bunch of super hot deals for the Summer of Sound sale. From now until the 6th of July 2023, Isotope are offering all their software for 50% or more off including the comprehensive mixing and mastering bundle Music Production Suite 5, as well as flagship tools like Ozone, RX, Neutron, and more. All things I use to edit this podcast. Visit isotope.com and check out the frankly colossal range of things that you can get at extraordinary prices. And take your mixing and editing to a whole new level. So Matt, um, there are these two windmills, uh, these big wind turbines, uh, turbines in a field, um, and one of them asks the other. He says, "So, what kind of music do you like?" And the other one says, "Well, I'm a big metal fan." Wait. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to the Guitar Nerds podcast this week's um, dad gad joke was provided by Peter Pesce. Thank you very much, Peter. I thought it was fantastic seeing as my list has been depleted to only terrible dad jokes from now on. That was great. That was great. (laughs) You sounded enthusiastic there, man. I'm always enthusiastic. (laughs) Um, Yes, I keep getting it on, on... I think youtube shorts there's two two sort of like middle-aged guys that are always like sat completely deadpan just pulling out a bunch of those random jokes i'll definitely have to try and remember some next time i see it um yeah try and try and add to the collection a little bit more yes yes absolutely it's about time you told a, a joke on this podcast <laughs> anyway dear listener hello and welcome welcome to another episode of guitar nerds this week matt and i are gonna uh we're gonna be talking about those new weird well, i mean weird those new super complex advanced mega digital delay pedals that boss have done Mm. Uh, including an EVH one. We're going to talk about that. We're going to tie that into the topic of the week that we've been trying to include in an episode for the last few weeks, Rob Nordvik's. And I will do another spin the wheel this week, dear listener, to get a topic of the week for next week from one of our Patreon subscribers. But we're going to try and talk about, um, we're going to talk about the evolution of guitar gear from analog to digital and, and uh, talk about the advantages and disadvantages of each. Um, before we do any of that, Dave Grohl looks like he's got an Epiphone signature Trini Lopez thing in the works. So I'm into this. I I remember when they did the Gibson one and I don't, I guess maybe because, I mean, the internet was definitely a thing when we were working in GAC, but there was certainly not as much. I guess YouTube was a thing, but really I only remember pro guitar shop demos. You know, there was less hype. I think less people knew about Joe Bonamassa's gear collection and, you know, cool, unique Gibsons that were coming out were a bit more like we had to phone the customers and be like, oh man, we've got this. It's amazing. Like if you've seen, it's like limited, you know, it wasn't the other way around where people basically just phone it. Like dealers just have to 
order it and then someone's going to buy it. And I definitely remember that that um, I had I had a customer once that he was like a broker for guitar purchases, um, and he was everywhere he was like i'm desperate to get one of these i've got so many people that want them i'm like trying to get as many as possible and i think even then he had one and was already like flipping it privately for like double the money (laughs) wow um and they never i've never seen one really come up secondhand just sort of google it now there is one for sale in the uk at straight bourbon music boutique uh, wow. in rowland's gill um Ugh. i don't even know what idea that is uh very sad to be doing this uh but i'm selling my dg335 bought new in 2014 has been played in the house and rehearsal rooms only Fourteen thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine pounds. I mean, boy, am I glad he took that pound off so that it doesn't say fifteen thousand at the top. Oh. That really sweetens the deal. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, hopefully, uh, I, I never know. Straight Bourbon Music Boutique might be a listener, so you know, it's cool that he's uh, or they have got this this guitar. But they are asking for two hundred and seventy-five pound shipping. Wow! I um, mean, it, even to, with insurance, to ensure, to ensure something that's fifteen grand, it's gonna, you know. I mean, I don't know if that would even cover it. To be honest, I shipped a, a six thousand pound, or, or uh, yeah, a six thousand pound. Uh, I can't remember what it was. Was it a Gibson? It was a Martin. It was a Martin. It was a, it was an acoustic of some form that was very expensive, hmm. um, and it was six grand. And I think that cost me two hundred quid to insure properly with a third party insurer. So you know, I, I don't hmm. know if if that's really going to cover it. But you'd think if you're going to spend fifteen grand, I mean, unless you're an international buyer. Uh, you'd probably make the journey. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, paying cash. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they did it in three finishes. I definitely think the Pelham Blue came first. They're saying 2007 to 2014. Even Reverb has said this is a rare listing. What What are the other colours then? What the, oh, they black, did the gold. and Black and metallic gold. Right. Uh, but pearl and blue, I think, is the one that most people want. I think that's the one that, um, yeah, I think most people like. That's the kind of the color that he plays. I think. Yes. Yes. Uh, most. He, yeah, he has that. He plays the pearl and blue the most. I guess um, the the thing that weirds me out is you know like a a black Gibson ES three three five like a good proper one is like three thousand pounds. Yeah. Yeah, but I think um, twelve thousand pounds extra for for different shaped f holes and a headstock. Well, you know, you can buy a fake from China <laughs> with his signature <laughs> on the back. Really? For, oh wow! <laughs> uh, for two hundred and eighty-seven dollars, um, I think you could get Trini Lopez for five thousand. Yeah, pounds. I think the thing is with this is it's very much the Billy Joe Armstrong, hmm. um, Tom DeLonge, you know, yeah. Mark Hoppus. It's the signature guitars of guitarists. I mean, you know, all of those people are still big hits with, like, younger generations of guitar players now. Sure. But for people like me and you, Joe, that 15 years ago or you know, when this guitar launched and you might have been massively into Foo Fighters, might be the reason that you play guitar. You could never afford one when it came out. And now you're like mid-30s to mid-40s and, you know, earning a decent wage. You're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to want one, but there isn't any available. So that's just going to push the price up and up. Yeah, I think it's that that generational thing. Yeah, Yeah, you're totally right. I think if they make an Epiphone one, I'm going to buy one. <laughs> You're going to buy it to flip it, though, Matt. I, I'm going to buy it to sit on it for like 20 years, and then I bet I'm Mark Packham. It. Mark Packham will buy like five and flip them all instantly. He's the king um, of flipping now. I think. I I I I think Matt's Matt's hot tip um, here. I generally think this is going to be a really good buy. I think if they do if they do an Epiphone version. Uh huh. To, just to play as a guitar, definitely a cool guitar, but I think in terms of that will never lose value. It'll be like those 
Joe Bonamassa, Firebird ones. Uh, yeah. That they will just not lose value. Well, Some I mean, they, they go for more than they than, than they were. Yeah, and actually, you know, just think about the Billy Joe Armstrong. It's a Les Paul Junior. Yeah. Like <laughs> in terms of like basics, you know, you can't do much more, much less with a guitar. Yeah, and um, you know, they just go for crazy money. So a point that was raised on the Guitar Nerds group on Facebook when this was posted about this, you know, sort of not leak, but, you know, this unofficial announcement as Dave Grohl's been pictured with an Epiphone version of the DG-335. Mm. Um, uh, someone pointed out, said, I, I bet, you know, that this uh, this is going to be one of those super-priced Epiphones that we've been seeing a bit recently. And we have been getting some premium-priced Epiphone signature models from various people recently. Mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. you've got the, uh, the, the um, well, uh, uh, Noel Gallagher um, Epiphone that came out. There's, there, there's, I can't think of any names. Um, there's, uh, um, Blake Wine done... purchased one by someone. Jim James, that's the no. new one they've done. That's the guy from My Morning Jacket. Um, I think that's they did a Gibson Custom Shop version, but they've done an Epiphone version now as well. Um, right. which is eight nine nine. The so... Emily Wolf uh, Sheraton. Oh, I think that yeah. one as well. Yeah. Um, we've definitely been seeing some premium priced Epiphone. So what do you think? How much do you think the DG335 is going to be new? It's a good question, isn't it? Because they could totally be like, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to run these suckers for all the money they've got. <laughs> yeah. um, it depends. Because if the, uh, these are definitely, I can't imagine these being because they had the Japanese casinos, Epiphone casinos. Do you remember when they were eleven nine nine? Yeah, and well, I that's what Noel, I think this is going to be. The Noel Gallagher. So I'm like, will it be eleven nine nine and made in Korea, or will uh-huh. it be six nine nine? And will they limit supply, or will they go? Come on, Foo Fighters. You know, there they isn't many bands supply. in the world that can sell out a stadium, let alone yeah, you know, an arena. So I'm just like. You know, you could you could take the uh, the kiss method of selling guitars and literally just <laughs> s- pile them on the merch stand and put a thousand dollars on them, and you'd probably sell twenty or thirty every gig. Yeah, you know, and the rest, and the rest. So I d- I don't know, I don't know. I think I'd like to see it at eight nine nine. I think that's wishful thinking. I'd like to see it at eight nine nine, seven nine nine. Oh, I'd love that. That would be wonderful. But I think you're probably right. I reckon eleven nine nine probably. That's probably where it's going to go. Isn't yeah, it, I think. Uh, Moog Gravit, friend of the podcast, Moog Gravit. He's a big Foo Fighters fan. I wonder if he's going to buy one. Let us know, Moog. Are you planning on picking one up? Maybe we need like some sort of pool. We'll yeah. all buy, we'll all chip in, and then <laughs> you know I'll have it on Mondays. You have it on Tuesdays, oh, yeah, and then we we'll just uh, we'll yeah. just take it from there. That, yeah, that is a good idea. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Obviously, we're yet to get an official announcement, so we're yeah, we're we're waiting to see yeah. to see what occurs. Take it from there. Um, I Matt, I have had a super hectic um, week. I've had loads of gigs. I went to see Choda Koo and Nordic Giants play a, a a very small show at Brighton Electric. That was very good. I, dear listener, I've spoken about Choda Koo in the past. I think uh, Charlie Barnes, the guitarist in Choda Koo, is absolutely fantastic. Plays a teddy with a strap neck um, through a Fender Twin. His only drive pedal is a is a Proco Rat, which he always runs on batteries. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> for the tones, yeah, exactly. He, but he just has such a simple setup, and it's always so fantastic. So that was really good. And I, I went to Portals Festival in um, in in London at Earth in Hackney. I don't know if you've ever been to. Earth no, Land, we. But... Uh, I think we were talking about it off podcast at one point, weren't we? And yeah, uh, probably. Was gutted, I couldn't go actually because it looked like some good bands this year. Oh, fantastic bands! I mean, Orange sponsored the festival, so it's chock full of Orange amplifiers. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's um, you know, it's. I saw some amazing stuff. Jambanai, uh, this fantastic band that play like a, a sort of a almost heavy uh, post rock um, with traditional Asian folk instruments. Um, I mean, uh, except for their guitarist, who's playing a uh, oh, uh, who's the Deftones guy? Stephen Carpenter. Carpenter. 
Oh yeah, uh, which one? The eight-string baritone. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, that <laughs> one. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Anyway, it was, I was quite far away, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. It definitely was one of his, um, uh, his guitars, his ESP. It is yeah, ESP that ESP. make those, isn't it? Yeah. Um, actually, funny enough, um, I've been listening to quite a lot of Deftones recently, and uh, I was like, oh man, that it, he does have just a crazy. It's sort of, in some ways, a bit like mush because right. he's like got these huge chords that he's doing like it's on an eight-string baritone. It's right. so low, but yeah, it just yeah it does fill out that that sound that sound very much. But I think they did an eight-string baritone in pink. <laughs> oh yes, point. I think I remember this very very. Yeah. Um, yeah, the um, ESP Steph B8CS, Stephen Carpenter in satin pink. And it's got those two Fishman Fluence pickups like in the middle. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're right next to each other in the middle. It's weird pickup placing, but it is cool. It does look good. I, I know. It's just, I, I just think it's great. I definitely, uh, it's just so tuned so low, but I'd yeah. absolutely, I'd absolutely play one of those. It's wicked. Yeah, they are a great. They are a great guitar. He's got actually got a lot of signature, a lot of signature guitars. They do a, they do a baritone telly style, then a couple of yeah. The telly's the the one that I'm more familiar with, but yeah. of course the the it's the SC six oh seven and six oh eight, which is the n- more normal uh, strat shaped mm. version of that guitar. Yeah, I think they do like a cheap one. Then they do one yeah. with two humbuckers and a single coil. Um, yeah. Anyway, oh, great. Anyway. Uh, ESP do make some great guitars. They recently got this the other Slipknot guitarist on board Mick as Thompson well. Has Mick Thompson came across from Jackson. Jackson, yeah, he's played Jackson since day one. But I'd like yeah. I always remember him sort of playing um, Jackson guitars. So yeah, moving over to. Um, ESP. I'm actually going through ESP's <clears throat> catalogue now, and I'm like, yeah, we definitely don't talk enough about ESP. I guess, like, because they, you know, they are generally geared towards maybe a guitarist that we probably don't talk about. But you know, they had those E2 series a few, quite a few years ago now, and I remember when we talked about them on the podcast when they first launched, and they were the ones that are made in Japan. Oh yeah. Um, but that the T series, the T E series, they do, they do, you know, they do some quite cool. Yeah, they do a six or seven string baritone, Teddy style, oh, with two humbuckers cool. in. Um, I remember for a while as well. At one point, when I was at GAC, we had an ESP Viper bass. Do you remember them? I do remember you. You're talking about the custom shop. Um, one that was made. It was an ESP Viper, which is there. The Viper's the SG style shape, almost mm. an offset SG. And it had a big eight pole Music Man pickup, but bang in the middle of the of the body. Uh, if you remember, because that was when me and Krista were running the, the bass department. Yeah. And we had, uh, for a brief point in time, we, we put all the uh, second-hand bases, as that was, on uh, on the far wall, right next to the staircase that led up to where we kept all the cases. Mm. And uh, one day, someone dropped a case down that staircase, and it took a massive chunk out the side of that Viper. And, uh, Did it? Yeah, so hey, whoever bought it got a great deal on account of that. <laughs> 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 but they are good, you know what, even like the LTD stuff, they're... It was always such high quality, and I'm I'm looking now. I'm on their website, looking at like the SN series and the TE series, which is kind of their, I guess, more traditional Strat and uh, Tele style guitars. I mean, they make some great stuff. I'm a big fan of the SN 1000 HT, which is like a fire blast finish. So it's like, do you remember those? I never liked them when Fender did it, but do you remember the sand blasted finish mm. finishes? That oh, Fender I always did? thought they were cool because they didn't they do a Jim Root sand blasted at one oh, point? Oh, did they? I don't. I mean, it would suit that guitar for sure. I only remember them doing strats and tellies. But yeah, the sand sand blasted thing. Uh, I'm sure they did a the sand blasted. Yeah, they did. They did a limited edition sandblasted Jim Root Jazz Master, which was like right. black and red, oh, um, cool. which was very cool. I still think those Jim Root Jazz Masters, I'm like, yeah, I'll play one of those. I think they're 
they're cool looking guitars those um but just on esp you've never seen anything like going to um big boss in uh i think it's big boss in ochanamizu in japan where they basically have the custom shop in there and it's like a whole section of the store with just like a desk and then like all the bits of wood and then you can basically just completely custom spec your own esp and it's all custom made and handmade to order um and they also have some like esps that you've just never seen they make so much stuff don't they that's the thing there's there's so much esp that sort of goes under the radar yeah, well, especially in Japan, there's a huge market for it um, in in Japan, and because they have a lot of um, like virtual bands and stuff like that that yeah you don't have like here, and they, they all have like signature guitars and <laughs> like all this sort of signature stuff. I'm sure we've talked about it before, but one of the really big like i don't know what they call them i guess yeah character bands like cartoon characters one of the biggest ones in japan is uh, a girl band called bang dream okay <laughs> and uh oh, they have their own signature esps wow <laughs> so they they don't exist they're not real but they have, um... they have their own signature esps Great. um which is pretty mad. Although I've just found a picture of them and one's playing a white Falcon and one's playing a Rickenbacker. So, um, yeah, clearly they can go wherever they want in the world of, (laughs) in the world of, um, signatures. But yeah, Mm. interesting. Although actually saying that it looks like ESP in Japan might also distribute Floyd Rose, Seymour Duncan, Italia and Lackland, bases oh well how about that but they also have navigator and edwards and grassroots which are three brands you basically don't see anywhere outside of japan you never get i i like a good edwards uh, you know the edwards are like these cool sort of high quality they're esps but they say edwards on them for, mm, for i don't reason. know why i don't know what the story is there no, me neither which um, we should know with it's supposed to be i the know i know <laughs> but um because you had a couple didn't you you had that great didn't you have a, an Edwards Les Paul at one point? No, uh, the only Edwards thing I ever had was a jazz bass actually that came through. It was very right. lovely. It was uh, one of my favourite, um, co- well, close to my favourite Gibson colour, uh, which his name escapes me. A red. Help me out. Uh, ca- the candy apple red. No, no. Come on, it's it's it's, uh, it's a flat cardinal red. There we go. Oh, cardinal oh, got red there red. in the end. Yeah, it was. Uh, which is a great color, and uh, mm. I, I was a big fan of that guitar. But um, but yes, ESP, great brand. We anyway, how do we get to ESP? <laughs> how do we get to ESP, Joe? <laughs> okay. I, I think remember. we were talking about portals, and then yeah, we somehow so went to yeah. Stephen Carpenter, and then we yeah. went to ESP. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But anyway, so I was in London for that, so I popped into Denmark Street on the on the way back. Didn't have very much time; I had to catch a train, so I just went into One Joe's and I went into Hanks. I, Emma was like, "You got time for maybe like a glance round two shops?" So, <laughs> and uh, so I hadn't been to Hanks in ages, so I went in there, checked out loads of stuff. Oh, they have such cool, weird things. Loads of echoes, loads of like weird old rocker switch control based sixty stuff mm. from like England and Italy and all all the countries that were sort of trying to imitate what America was doing at that you know sort of fifties sixties point in time, but weren't quite hitting the nail on the head. Yeah, um, it's loads of cool things like that. And I got to try out a fretless Guild B three hundred two because I'm on the on the hunt for a new fretless at the moment oh yeah, yeah. it's very very lovely problem with it was it's an unlined fretless which is fine if you're playing jazz but if you're playing a rock and roll band and you're moving around a lot on stage and you're playing with a loud band it's very difficult sometimes to hear if you're in or out so the lines do really help especially when you think without lines the gap between the first and the third fret that's that's a lot of space and you've only got the dots on the side so yeah. trying to get your second fret on the money <laughs> is uh can just, be a little um, bit of an just use a vibrato you're always slightly out <laughs> that's it. um yeah that's the, yeah that's the solution but you know i didn't i didn't get anything because i've got that we talked about it last week um i got that um refinished warwick streamer at the moment part of their rock based series which dear listener are very affordable the budget single pickup warwick streamer 
I will say, guitarists out there, you know, we always talk about the Broncos and things like that, but man, he wants something simple and playable. Um, they are extremely playable. Great necks, you know, kind of small, more tailored towards, you know, I guess a guitarist's hands in, the, in that sense. Mm. But uh, the one I've got, um, as I think we did mention, has been retrofitted with a Guild Bisonic pickup. The uh, the BS One, <laughs> uh, poor, poorly named slightly maybe, but the uh, the Guild BS One Bisonic pickup, uh, which is a ninety nine dollar pickup, dear listener, if you want to buy it. I think it might be the perfect modding pickup for bass. It's so affordable and it sounds absolutely fantastic. It can turn something like you know, this very modern Warwick into a great sort of tight but vintage sounding P bass. I recorded a little demo of me playing the Warwick. Uh, this is just the Warwick. I recorded two lines of bass. One's just doing some high stuff in the background to pad it out with a little drum loop going. But listen to this tone for something that's a very affordable setup. To look five years younger. In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There it is. Oh, I think that's a great there is nothing that's I'm using a, it is a great sound. I'm using a simple um uh plugin alliance SVT uh plugin and there's a, a little bit of the the stock Studio One free fat compressor on the end of that. Mm. Um that's it. Yeah. That's yeah, I think it sounds really good. Yeah. It's always nice to explore something a little bit different on the old bass front there, Mr. Joe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But dear listener, you know, if you're a bass player or you're, you know, yeah, thinking about something for bass, I can't recommend enough. Just that Bisonic pickup. Put it in whatever you've got. It's uh, it's great. It is great. Now, yes, Matt, man. We, uh, we, we said um, we're going to talk about Rob Nordvik's Topic of the week. Yes. I want to get into that. 
All right, let's um, let's we get into it. Let's get into that now. Uh, very quickly before we do, let's um, we should spin the wheel um, so that we can find out who's going to uh, who's going to be choosing our topic of the week for next week. Uh, so let's spin the wheel. There we go, dear listener, and this week's winner um, is in, is actually uh, someone whose question we were going to potentially talk about a little bit later is Robin Smith. Well done, Robin Smith. You are this week's victor. Uh, we'll be in touch, and you can let us know what you'd like us to talk about on next week's episode. Um, lovely. Yeah. Very lovely. Uh, so Rob Nordvik wanted us to talk about the evolution of guitar gear from analog to digital, including the advantage and disadvantages of each. Because I guess, must lo- much like fashion, uh, we're, we're going through, you know, it's it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? We we mm. we had the we have the sort of uh, the all the original gear, and then the eighties happened, and maybe. By today's standards, we'd consider those first forays into digital gear uh, vulgar or tasteless, maybe slightly. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that they were all bad. I'm just saying they were a little bit all or nothing. Um, and then we've had this sort of move back into vintage gear and Valve stuff, and that's that's really been that's been pretty strong certainly the whole time that matt you and i have been working mm-hmm. in guitar shops but now we're, we're seeing great innovations obviously things like gt by boss things like helix they've changed the game and then having access to things like katana um uh oh i forgot what the fenders uh, mustang mustang you know yeah you know mm. things like katana things like mustang they've all made that sort of thing available to to people at an affordable price point, you can't discount things like the positive grid spark, you know, at a very affordable level. Well, giving yeah. people access to that stuff. And, uh, I think, yeah. um, you know, one of the biggest evolutionary jumps, or maybe it's not an evolutionary jump, but one of the biggest things we're seeing now, you know, is a move away from, even you know if you've got high end effects processing so yeah gt1000 line 6 helix more flagship quad cortex but you're moving away from even having a physical piece of hardware with a processor and a chip in it and actually just having it all on your computer like yeah. there's nothing more digital <laughs> than effectively plugging your guitar into a computer and hearing it through monitors and we are really a gen, you know, a generation of players now that can try all of that gear from nineteen fifty nine, nineteen fifty. You know, the early guitars, guitar pedals, all the way through to, you know, plugging into a computer and having a piece of software do right. everything for you. Yeah, um, it's pretty bad, really, when you think about. Well, and also How having access to the bin, really. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I totally interrupted you halfway through a sentence. No, I was just, you know, you think only 120 years ago did the first plane take off, and you know, right. only 60 years ago did someone make the first guitar pedal. Yeah, you know, you've gone from "Ain't No Satisfaction" by the Rolling Stones to. <laughs> um, Think of a song, uh, a modern uh, song. No, I was trying to think of a song by um, that band that everyone likes with Meshuggah. Tim in. No, uh, Polyphia. Oh, but yeah. I couldn't name you one Polyphia song. <laughs> they probably can't. <laughs> um, which again is, you know, it's, I guess, no, you, a better example. And the one I always think about is, yeah, you've gone from Ain't No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones to a guitarist like Pliny, who when yeah, we interviewed yeah. him a few years ago, was like, yeah, I've never plugged into an amp. Yeah, yeah. Well, Matt, you know, we're at a time where people are getting signature plugins, like Rabia having his own neural DSP amplifier yeah. and effects pedal set. And it's yeah. not based off anything. I mean, obviously, there's ideas and inspirations, but it's not like here's a boogie and here's a 
it is you know his three amps that cover his sound and yeah. style so yeah i think it's it's really interesting and it does you know i'm sure we'll talk about the i don't want to talk about them just now but you know the new boss sd 3000 you know and talking about the history of the 3000 rack unit which came at the i guess the birth of digital technology or yeah. digital technology starting to make its way into the world of guitars and you know they were developing that before commercial cd players <laughs> yeah. were available you know yeah. but you know cds hadn't even cd players you couldn't really buy one at an affordable price you know think companies like sony and that were talking about all of that you know and that made that massive jump to 12 bit you know and it just seemed insane um at that point yeah and i think what's really interesting is that that products like that were half digital and half analog you know so there was still a level of analog that had to be built into that circuit and that design and then you had sort of like digital control over certain parts of it but analog control over other bits right you know and then that slowly i guess for me, I always feel that digital technology was moved forward by obviously lots of people innovating new technologies that were available to them. I, mean, I think about since you think about DX7, you know, everyone had analog synths, and then Yamaha was like, oh, here's a completely different digital synthesizer. Yeah. And it became like one of the most popular synths ever. Um, and, and I guess really it just moved, people used it, it became popular. So that pumped enough money back into people to try and one-up it and do something better. Um, but I've, I was reading something interesting. I can't remember where it was, an article about delay pedals. And, you know, for the longest time, you know, obviously you had like DD3 was pretty dominant. You had like other digital compacts. But it wasn't until DL4 came along in 2000. Right. That really changed the game in terms of like, here's what you could, here's multiple digital delays in one box yeah. with some presets. Like no one had ever seen anything like that before. And I think that then spurs on this infighting within the industry to like create one better or do something different or innovate or, you know, Absolutely. whatever. You know, I think that's where evolution really comes from. Yes, technology plays a part in it, but I think it's also people just trying to outdo each other in the industry, really. Definitely. And and that's certainly where I agree that that's where digital is is progressing. You know, these days we're seeing companies like Chase Bliss really at the forefront of that. Maybe mm. maybe Game Changer as well, um, if, if nothing else, just for originality and how they're approaching making pedals. But here's like a, as a slight counter, not really a counter, but the other side of it, did digital stuff the dl4 is actually the uh is is the argument against what i'm about to say but did digital stuff really get enough of a hold in the industry before it started trying to imitate analog stuff you know, oh, before you look at you look at a digital delay the idea was they were like here's here's a delay where the tails don't get um, muddy sounding, you know, we've mm. improved some things, but, and I appreciate people wanted that at the time, but I think where all this gear has really exploded is Im digital gear imitating unobtainable analog gear mm. and, and the whole modeling world. That's, that's what's brought digital gear back. The fact that uh, on a Helix, I can get a clone. Yeah, and I appreciate, dear listener, <laughs> there are lots of clone clones out there. But, you mm. know, it's it's that I can get. That was maybe the clones may be a bad example. But with that Helix, I can have a, I can have a clone and maybe um, I think they do a, a DM2 style uh, d delay on there. And I can run that into a Fender Twin. And, you know, that's it's it's the modeling side that has made digital stuff really very popular again now, because it's not just for the nerds mm. who want a digital delay pedal because it can do all this ridiculous ping pong stuff. It's now for the, almost the analog purists as well. They've got options there. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I know when I've had conversations with engineers and stuff before and, 
certainly from like a Roland perspective, there was a an always always an effort to try and iron out the issues with previous products because those things were seen as you know improvements so you know right. digital delay came along because you know if you look at tape tape was bulky tape delays were expensive they had physical parts that would wear out like tape uh, they might sound different from night night to night and it's the same with analog synths you know and they have to warm up or any analog gear so digital gear allowed it a much more consistent and controlled approach and then obviously as processes got better you know you could iron out the cleaner sounds and the headroom and the dynamic range and then i guess yeah as modeling came along now boss were the first company to do modeling and certainly in a multi-effects you know composite object sound modeling um and yeah then it allowed them to go okay well we can capture the sounds or we can take the sounds of old products and it's funny isn't it you wouldn't have thought that you would necessarily spend 1500 quid on a helix to mimic an analog <laughs> delay pedal yeah. from 40 years ago <laughs> yeah. that in the eyes of perhaps an engineer sounds not as good as the other product <laughs> that you're plugging into yeah um i i guess really what probably helped modeling technology analog technology is the desire for hard to find older gear you know everyone right. makes a clone clone because everyone wants a clone yeah you know analog or or digital so i guess it's because i, I think if people had just gone no that is in the past and we don't want that yeah then what would be the point of modeling yeah stuff? yeah i guess because we are still i mean we're still like as you pointed out when we started talking about this we're very close still as a human race to the dawn of rock and roll and electric instruments mm. this is the first time what we're experiencing now is the first time that vintage gear has been coveted because it's the first time vintage gears existed you know what what were boss's first six stomp boxes 1977 yeah and you know, that's that's not very long ago <laughs> well i think as, as well and i i've you know I, I sort of take my dad's stance on this because i think it's quite relevant because he's into classic cars and for him you know he's 73 a classic car to him was a car that was cool when he was into cars you know from the 40s or the 50s you know right. but once you got if you know if you were then born in the 70s or the 80s you know a cool car to you would be like something that was cool at that at that that period yeah and you know for people now it's a totally different thing and you know kids who are growing up now are looking at like mega fast sports cars you know and a car from 1930s looks really old and outdated and i think guitars are actually at probably at that point because i i know i was looking at we've talked about this before but american standard strats from 2000 going how are they 1500 quid (laughs) they're more money now than they were when we were selling them at at gack yeah and and i think it's because i look at it and go you know what? What guitar I miss? I missed my first American Strat, and it was a 2001 American Strat. And I said, right. if I'm going to buy something now that's affordable, I'm going to buy... Yeah, I could buy a 60s Strat, but I'm like, they're a lot of money. They're too much money for me and for 90%, 99% of the people out there. Also, how also, much longer are they going to last? We are yeah. at that point. Can you really gig a 60s instrument? I know my 69P bass stays mm. in a case. I'm going to set it because... I can't gig it. It's not reliable. Yeah, and I, I just think like there's probably going to get to a point where, you know, are people growing up? I, I don't know because you've still got people like Slash or people are still into Stevie Ray Vaughan or Jimi Hendrix, you know, and Some. they were playing these old Strats or old Les Pauls, you know. But there's going to get to a point where, you know, we're talking about that Stephen Carpenter guitar you know yeah. people are getting to deftones now that they're like be like 12 years old and then 20 years time like, i want one of those that guitar is going to be 20 or 30 years old at that point right. is that going to be more desirable than a 59 les paul if you're yeah. not into metal like 59 you know if perhaps if you're into polyphia and modern tech metal are you going to be into a 59 les paul <laughs> no you're going to want a tim henson signature so that guitar becomes irrelevant so i wonder if there will be a point where that 
generation of people just get beyond that oh, and then I, I, a I, new I, range of guitars or something and a new range of technology becomes desirable and people go oh, i want stuff from the 90s not yeah, stuff maybe. from yeah. well hopefully we'll know. all just forget about the 90s but I, I i really hope that you're that you're wrong i hope that it's not the case because i hope it doesn't matter that we're moving forward i still i kind of disagreed with you on the cars i still think that you know, an Aston Martin DB4 is a classic car, but that that happened 25 years before I was born. Mm. Um, and, you know, so it wasn't cool at the time, but that is a great classic car. A great, you know, vintage guitar is still a, a 51 Telecaster, you know? Mm. that's that I, Hopefully that's not going to change because that was the dawn of rock and roll, just like those cars were the dawn of, fast automobiles yeah you know i hopefully that always stays it's the origin period not a set amount of time from when you're born hopefully Mm. people carry on thinking that you know the dawn of rock and roll is a coveted time period where people were making awesome stuff with the gear that was available to them but but you know you're you know who knows it's (laughs) it's difficult isn't it because the more people you know there's always this constant thing about you're seeing less and less valve amps and yeah you know do i think valve technology is probably going to die in the next 10 years no 20 maybe starting to see less 30 50 um but there'll always be people who want it i think it's just new players help drive that technology forward because they're the people that adopt it yeah well because that's what's available to them isn't it well matt i think the thing that that drives it are famous bands big bands big players and you know they the, there are people out there like joe bonamassa sure but i would suggest that most big bands actually care about reliability most mm. Uh, mm. that's their number one thing and with digital stuff getting as good as it is obviously we've already seen tech metal and metal bands really uh, you know the uh, go in for using digital stuff and plugins and mm. things like helix for live they they've dominated that that scene and ampler stages are everywhere there's sort of this core like rock and roll and indie rock that's still using real amplifiers how long will that hold on for if valve amps are getting harder to repair harder to find a repair person for and mm. you've got great um solutions from the digital world i the thing i think we've spoken about this on the podcast but the conversation i always have with dave green at ashdown he's the designer at ashdown Mm. he doesn't like digital gear because it's not repairable when it goes wrong yeah it's it's not like you can have it repaired so there's a a slight sense of maybe there being a bit of false economy with digital gear in that once it breaks you've got to buy a new one whereas when you know something transistor breaks you have it repaired I guess it's um, that's the unfortunate thing that we live in today about throwaway technology, isn't it? It's like people are used to yeah. buying a new phone every year or every two years. Yeah, uh, people are bu- used to buying a new multi effects every year, or <laughs> you know, switching plugins every five minutes. Something new comes out, and you almost get this point where no one sticks to anything because everyone's always trying to try the latest thing yeah um so you know i totally get that because yeah you know people they're they're not as there's that there's less of that right to repair right you know it's like oh yeah it breaks you can't repair it sorry okay i'll just it's it's easier yeah if a 150 pound you know non-valve amp breaks to just probably buy another 150 pound valve uh you know solid state or modeling amp than it is to go and get it repaired yeah yeah Uh, which is terrible terrible for the environment oh it's terrible yeah it's it's so ridiculous it's the it's the most hypocritical thing i think about our generation matt and me included like you know i i do half my shopping at hisby's which you know dear dear listener if you're not from brighton or worthing you probably don't know what that is but it's like a what it's one of those supermarkets a waste-free supermarket so you bring your own containers right like you know i have some uh you know i have a a, a contract with recycled toilet paper that gets delivered mm. you know like everything i have in my like i'm vegan for goodness sake everything i have in my life is so i'm always thinking about eco stuff and all of that yet when it comes to gear 
we, <laughs> we we buy all this digital stuff that we can't fix that just goes into landfill when it breaks it's sort of the the absolute reverse of everything else so i think as a generation we're quite you know eco-minded in general everyone's thinking about mm. uh about their carbon footprint and mm. waste and things like mm. that yet <laughs> yet we uh when it comes to yeah. you know digital gear yeah we get the we get the latest phone and we buy a new unrepairable digital thing <laughs> all yeah the time. I, th- I think um what's interesting and i think i'm at that point now is that and i think everyone gets to this point uh, you know talking about the evolution of gear is you get to a point where you just don't take that next step like right. for me plugins were just a step beyond what i was willing to get into or enjoy or use so now everything that probably comes post plug-in is just like too much for me (laughs) do you know what i mean i'm just like no that's it i'm going backwards and not and and uh and not forwards and i guess everyone probably gets to that point where they're just like no that's no i'm not gonna upgrade my phone and i'm gonna stick to my computer that's 10 years old because it works yeah Um, our parents got to that point with um um sat navs or you know phone maps you know they, they'll mm. still still insist on telling you the way to go to somewhere even though you can look it up on your phone and that way avoid traffic that's yeah uh, everyone gets to the point every generation gets to that point where they're like i know it's available i know the information is available but i'm done mm. i'm uh stopping here i think uh, i think what's great though is in the last 20 years you know what what's evolved in the world of pedals has been companies like chase bliss yeah. who have kind of gone you know analog you know analog heart digital brains like actually right. how you know you a circuit's a circuit like the components sure. you put in, like people aren't necessarily I, I mean i would say for fairly certain but i'm sure that there's not many people out there making new capacitors or new resistors or designing new ways to build a circuit necessarily. Like the circuit designs are are what's out there. What's changing is you're getting companies like that who are digitally controlling analog tech, or you're getting an improvement in DSP coding. So yes, you're getting more powerful processes like, you know, stuff that's coming out from bosses, 32 bit 96 K and you've got more headroom and less latency. But it's the programming, the DSP, everything that goes into creating the sound or the algorithm um, that's sort of evolving guitar pedals now. Yes, you're getting lots of new cool analog circuits or new takes on analog circuits, but there's certain companies, I think, like Chase Bliss, who are taking it up a level in terms of like programming and algorithm design. Um, you know, because that's not modeling anything, but that's creating like new types of new types of sound, new types of yeah. effect. You know, um, hologram electronics with the microcosm is a is another one. I think you know that granular looper delay type thing and programming these new cool algorithms to create new music. That's what's you know. I think that's what's evolving in the guitar that's, effect world. Yeah, definitely. That is that's that's what's pushing things mm. forward. Mm. I mean, on that note, Matt, is that a, that's a quite a good segue for us to talk about uh, Boss doing exactly that with the most computery, futuristic looking. Well, <laughs> well the they've DeLorean. got physical, they're, they're, Yeah, the, the DeLorean. Um, the SDE three thousand D and three thousand EVH. So the SDE 3000, the rack unit originally, which was in 1983, designed by Yoshikigami, who was the president of um, of Boss. Um, he originally designed was the lead engineer on that. So they wanted to create a they wanted to use digital technology to create a delay that was more stable, more portable you know, the ultimate delay sound right. to take the next evolution from RE201, I, I guess. You know, you think we made RE201 from seven, 1977 to 1991. <sighs> yeah. Um, or 1990. Desperate to bring out something new to replace it by that um, So, you know, from, you know, 1977 to 1983, that's only six years. But you think in those years, what you did have is you had the evolution from tape... Ta- 
analog so the yeah. the creation of the bbd the bucket brigade device you know the the way to basically make a delay sound with a small chip so you didn't need tape but at the same time yes digital tw- technology was becoming a thing so they could digitally control elements of the circuit like you know the clock for example to control and have a much more consistent delay time add in things like you know memories never didn't have a delay with memories how could you yeah. you know how could you do that so it was a, all of those sort of ideas but it was an originally it was a, a rack unit a mono rack unit so a lot of people a lot of players ended up using two so they could run them in stereo because you effectively you know just set them to the same delay time on the screen and yeah. then you would run them or you would run them slightly out but you'd have a big stereo sound you know if you think 83 going into that point of like stadium rock and big you know refrigerator rack units and <laughs> all of the session people started using them and it definitely had that sound of what we would class now as vintage digital like 12 bit <laughs> digital <laughs> delay sounds vintage um, digital yeah definitely you know so vintage vintage digital and it's and it's that mixture of a part analog part digital circuit that created the magic of that sound because yes you had modulation but you also had a small amount of modulation in the clock signal in the unit itself which even though it's not like jumping up and down 10, 15 milliseconds, there's a slight movement in that signal. It just creates a warmth and ambience with that sound, but also the kind of airy, high dynamics of the way it was built and designed. It just has a really great sound that just sits in a mix. But obviously it's been discontinued since the early 90s, you know, because obviously things start to pick up speed and we could make um you know we made the dd2 in 1984 1985 so a couple of years after you know taking the same chip that's in the sde fits perfectly into a compact the birth of the first ever compact digital delay pedal people like don't need a rack don't need a you know don't need a tape and i've got a digital delay pedal that sounds exactly the same every time i turn it on um but you know, fast forward to to now. There's lots of famous users who still ha- use SDEs, still in the studio. Right. You'll still see them in studio racks wow. yeah. everywhere. Oh, yeah. yeah, and it does have for. it does have a sound. They don't go for tons of money, um, but you know they are. You know, most people would buy them and run two of them and run them in in pairs. Hmm. So, you know, like what we did with the RE two hundred two last year we wanted to bring that sound into a modern day pedal. So rather than just going, okay, well, we're going to stick a digital delay in a box. There's loads of digital delays out there. As I said, everyone used to run them in stereo pairs. So we put not one, but two sets of stereo pairs in one box. So effectively you have DDL1 and DDL2. You can turn those on and off independently. And each one of those is a stereo pair of SDE, 3000s so if you're running it in stereo you effectively have four delay lines that you can run in stereo or you can run wet dry you can run one delay into another you can run series or parallel um and it mimics and recreates all of the options of the original as well as some some other stuff as well for for modern day, you know the fact that you've got MIDI and everything on there. But I have to say, I I've got the three thousand D on my pedal board. Right, it's just there's a magic sound to it that is so difficult to explain, <laughs> but it just it just works. It just sits Lo- in a mix. It's absolutely just perfect. A lot just of a buttons perfect on it, sound. A lot of buttons. A lot of buttons. It's exactly the same topology as the, as the original rack. unit. We didn't want to change that. Um, and also, again, old units, like we did the RE202, we took seven of the original units and then like took elements from all of those to kind of come up with a comprehensive sound in a box that sounded like you know, a wide range of all of those units. But effectively, you've got time, feedback, output level, modulation rate modulation depth and then on the front you can filter the delay by hitting the filter button you can double the delay time by hitting the times two button 
then you can invert the phase of either the guitar signal or the feedback uh, the repeats. Right. So that's really handy when you're running two because you can invert the phase of one or the other. So you get a lot of different mod- like cross-modulation sounds and then yeah. you've got a modulation button that turns the modulation on and off. Um, Obviously, I understand why you've done it to keep the topology the same as mm. the rack unit, but it's funny to see also the time feedback, you know, rate and depth controls, those standard delay controls that I'd expect to be on a rotary instead being on a little rocker switch. Yeah, well. yeah. And actually, I much prefer it because once you okay, get used yeah, to it, right. it's so quick to just dial in it, dial right. it in exactly how you want it. That's it. Um, and, you know, I thought the interesting story was at that time was the reason they did it that way on the rack units was at the time everyone who was using rack units, everything just had red LEDs. So from the back of the stage, or if you're in the audience, you couldn't tell what people were using. So they wanted to do it in blue with a screen so that when you saw it behind someone on stage, you knew they were using a Boss product. Very smart. And I was like, that's genius. Um and I like the fact that we've kept doing the same. And actually, I like the buttons. You know, rotary is great, but it's not as precision as this, and it really allows uh-huh. you to dial dial those in. So it's amazing. Stereo in, stereo out, all the features you'd expect from a, a modern digital delay product. But it has a, a magic sound to it that, yeah, it's, it's unlike anything else. And you can even get things like chorus uh, and flanges out of it as well, depending on how you play around with the wow, that's filtering cool. and stuff, um, which is very cool. But one of the most famous users of the stereo pair of SDs was Eddie Van Halen. And he ran a complete like wet, dry, wet, so three amps, and then splitting the two SDs out in stereo. Um, so oh, we basically made... such an ultimate setup. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's definitely, uh, out of everything I've said today, I urge anyone to just go, if you haven't watched the videos that Boss put out online, because the stories are amazing. But yeah, he basically ran a, a three-amp setup, and we wanted to do a version that people who wanted that sound and wanted to run that rig could. Um, so it's a more ultimate version of the 3000D in the fact right. that it allows you to run a fully wet, dry, wet setup. So you can run three amps and then it's also got an effects loop on it as well. So you can run it seven cable method. So you can have the preamp from the dry amp and then run out into these <laughs> two stereo amps, or you can have your own distortion pedal. And it's got, of it's got uh, four of his actual presets as well from his actual, actual units. So, you know, certainly for people who are into Van Halen, will want to run a big, even bigger rig, um, then there's a Van Halen version as well, which is very, very cool. Wow, that is, uh, yeah, that, that is that is very full on. This is this is a very comprehensive digital delay pedal. Um, I, um, in fact, actually, Joe, we should perhaps leave it there and you should create a backing track and maybe I should just do some sounds over Great. the top of it um, to give Let's people a little bit of a uh, to give people a little bit of a flavour. Week um, after next, we'll get back to everyone on that. We'll do we'll do yeah. some some because I, I, playing I, um, I and I'll demo. I'll try and do a bunch of different sounds just using that. Um, but yeah, honestly, I I would say to everyone, it's like you haven't played or heard a delay pedal that sits quite like this in wow. your guitar sound it's really really stunning very very cool indeed um, now that is the question duck letting us know that well in fact it is actually almost time for the end of this podcast but when matt and i finish we're going to be heading over to patreon.com forward slash guitar nerds where each week we record an extra episode where we talk about questions or topics that have been mentioned in the Guitar Nerds group on Facebook. Um, This week, um, Josh Chudley... um, had bought and uh, he's he had a base rig he's looking to upgrade he was looking for suggestions on that so we might talk a little bit about that because he was interested in the 
boss katana 210 so we might talk around that a little bit um a few weeks ago i started talking about marshall and the fact i've never really owned one i really would like to you guys sent me loads of suggestions i'm going to talk about um the app that i'm gonna go for out of that range um john mahon is doing a board rejig and he's looking for an ideally dual drive and boost recommendation so we might talk about that now i I, i've been meaning the last few weeks to do this um uh, suggested by one of the listeners. I can't remember who. I think it might be Peter Pesci, the, the same fellow who gave me the joke at the start of this week's episode. Um, he suggested doing a listener's gear of the week. And I've been meaning to do it. And I keep, it, it just keeps, you know, we, you know, you know how it is, dear listener. We go off on one and forget where we are. But mm. um, I might talk a little bit about, I saw Sam Brooksby on the Facebook group sharing that he'd bought an EVH Wolfgang. And then there were a bunch of comments of other people with EVH Wolfgang saying, yeah, great guitar, amazing value for money. Just never something I've ever talked about. Like, sure, they were guitars we sold at Gap, but I never gave them a second look. So maybe Matt and I will talk around those. And, of course, there are lots of different iterations by different brands of that type of guitar. So we could talk around those a little bit. And, uh, yeah, maybe some other bits, but we'll see <laughs> We'll see what we get time for. Um, but, yeah, we're going to go over and do that now. So, dear listener, thank you very much indeed for listening again to another week's episode of the Guitar Nerds podcast. Hop over to patreon.com forward slash guitar nerds. It's got all the info there on how you can sign up and support our channel community and uh, i'll be back matt you've got a week off next week so uh, you have indeed so i'll be back with a guest on next week's episode for more of this guitar nerdery farewell goodbye Well, that's it for another week of the Guitar Nerds podcast, which only leaves me to say thank you eternally and very, very muchly to all of our top-tier Patreon backers. Thank you very much to Marcus Deluxe, Suresh, Dorsonic Pickups, Chris Franklin, Anton Fryant, Russ Meehan, Barry Gresbick, Steve Davis, Daniel Walker, Jorin Brown, John Conway, The Studio Rats, Russell Healing, Yogi the Guitarist, Ty Allen, Carl Harris, Sean Hughes, Andy Hoffler, Eric Hemmer, Jeffrey Wax, Brian Einsler, Mark Hisiao, Kaduaki, Stuart Robson, Eric File, Peter Pesce, Andy Manley, Joe Patek, Blake Wyland, Phil Radomski, Dave Lee, Ross Edwards, Jason Wharton, James Dor, Jake Gray, Derek Rich, Scott Kennedy, Steve Merkel, Abe Matthews, Christopher Losef, Stephen Burke, Robin Smith, Kytopia the Band, J.D. Short, Andy McKenzie, Brad Page, Paul Corrigan, Rob Nordvik, Scott O'Brien, and the wonderful Moog Graphic.